Radhika Jones, Editor-in-Chief of Vanity Fair. If you enjoy binge-watching the best TV shows and love hearing from the actors and showrunners who make them happen, then subscribe to Vanity Fair. Our Hollywood reporters take you behind the scenes of the year's most anticipated projects, the industry's biggest moves, and the hardest-fought awards races. From The Crown to The Real Housewives, we've got the inside scoop. As a special thank you to our still-watching audience, we're offering 15% off a yearly digital subscription to Vanity Fair. Visit VanityFair.com today and use promo code POD15. That's VanityFair.com, promo code POD15, for 15% off a yearly digital subscription to everything you want. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Wind Gap. There's a murder there. Another one's missing now. Get me a story. Bad mama. Goodness, I didn't expect you. The house is not up to par for visitors. I'm just in town on business. Person does it. Hurt a child. Doesn't help anything. Riling folks up. You got two mutilated girls on your hands. Something else is doing the rhyming. I didn't come back to cause any problems. Everything you do comes back on me. Mama says I need to be careful around you. Are you dangerous? Hello and welcome to Still Watching Sharp Objects, an unofficial podcast about the HBO series Sharp Objects. I'm Vanity Fair senior writer Joanna Robinson. And I'm Vanity Fair Chief Critic Richard Lawson. Each week of this series, we have been breaking down the latest episode and occasionally featuring interviews with people who worked on the show. This week, we have a hat trick of interviews. We've got some commentary from series director Jean-Marc Vallée, uh, series co-creator Marty Noxon, and star Eliza Scanlon. Um, to trade off for that, we will have no spoiler section this week because... There's nothing to spoil! We did it! Yay! <laughs> uh, but before we get to any of that and talking about episode 8, titled Milk, directed by Jean-Marc Vallée and written by Marty Noxon, uh, we have a few housekeeping things we want to get out of the way. First of all, Richard, we've had a lot of people ask us if when Sharp Objects finished, like, should they delete their still-watching um, subscription from their phones? Yeah, go back to St. Louis, you know, hit, you know, just return to normal life. Uh, no, of course not. Nothing should be deleted because we are soldiering on in a slightly different way for a few weeks before we start another series. Right. So we have a series in mind. We haven't like exactly confirmed it yet, but we believe we know what we're going to do starting, starting in October ish. Um, but for the month of September, basically we're going to be doing something a little different, which is just diving into a few of the fall TV shows that we're excited about week by week. We'll still have interviews. Uh, we still might find a way to use some Tupac and hog noises. Who knows? But Richard and I will be here talking about fall TV. There's a lot. There's always a lot. There's a 
lot to talk about. So we're pretty excited about that. So, so stay tuned. We will be taking one week off. We're taking Labor Day weekend off. So if you don't see a new podcast in your feed, um, next weekend, that's why. But the following weekend, we'll be back with some sort of fun experimental fall TV discussions. So, but if, if listeners want to hear about, how I spent Labor Day, they can listen to uh, our other podcast, Little Gold Men, and where I'll be talking about Telluride Film Festival. Exactly. You'll want to hear it because Richard always comes back like with basically like the best picture Oscar winner in his pocket. So uh, tune in to Little Gold Men. Um, we also want to mention uh, a couple um, emails that we got. You know, thank you guys for all your emails all season. Uh, ever since we like sort of implored that people be nice to us, people have been really nice to us in emails. So thank you for that. Um, what what uh, power we wield? That's, I that's know. Nice to know. Maybe we should all try it out in the world. Go out in the world and be like, hey, why don't you just be nice? And then people are nice. <laughs> <laughs> why don't you be, don't be uncool, be cool. Isn't that the way I'm real Exactly. Like, exactly. Anyway. Um, so Thomas Shepard wrote in, um, and he's like super worried about offending us by raising something that we missed, which is really sweet. But he just wanted to point out that we did, neglected to mention that there's a shot in episode seven of Adora, uh, as the woman in white sort of beckoning, um, children into the woods. And so obviously, like, that's not the last woman in white scene we see. Um, but it's, you know, it's a, it's, the second of three and it was one we neglected to mention so and i should just say right off the bat if you're listening to this and you didn't watch all the way through the closing credits of the finale uh you should maybe press pause on this and go do that because you will have missed some important yeah nothing major major but like it's definitely it it rounds out the very end just a little bit more it feels yeah it feels somewhat major i I like i definitely miss it the first time richard's like you didn't watch the credits i was like oh no did i learn nothing from westworld god damn it all right um and then uh the second email comes from brenda uh and she writes in greetings and salutations i'm sure someone wrote in already oh because last week we said the title of the episode falling was not one of the words on camille's body we were wrong because falling uh, john reads the word falling off of camille's body as as they are sort of uh you know, getting to know each other biblically. Mm-hmm. Um, also, Brenda points out, uh, we all point fingers at Alan and Jackie about Marion, but what about Gayla? She's been with the family since both Camille and Marion were little girls, plus she has access to Adora's room. Could be a race or class issue as to keeping tight-lipped about this. Uh, loving the podcast and especially comparing the series to the book. Can't wait for the finale. So, yeah, this this question of Gayla, I don't think we get a lot of resolution on, on the Gayla complicity question. You know, she's here in the background once again in this episode. We do see her, I thought that was really interesting, we see her sort of helping Adora into her shoes as she's getting arrested. Um, but yeah, it feels like Gayla is, uh, you know, she's, yeah. she's loyal up until the end, I guess. Yeah, I feel like sorry go ahead they could have like if they were going to introduce her in the way they did like maybe she could have been a bit more explored i don't know maybe they didn't have time or room or whatever but like take a couple alan scenes away and give them to her you know i don't know yeah they you know i talked to you know both jean-marc valet and marty Knoxon about the way in which the male characters have been expanded in the series um and, uh, you know, I think probably for better in a lot of cases. Um, and John Mark Vallee in particular has a lot of sympathy for the male characters, which I think provides like, um, an interesting balance. He calls Alan a une solitaire. Like he's just like so <laughs> sympathetic and, and romantic about Alan where I'm like, Alan is complicit and he's a monster. Um, but I, 
I think you're right that there could be room for Gala, especially as we've talked about the way in which this show has like flirted with um, questions of race, you know, like in the episode Cherry, uh, in Gala's presence, and then in this episode, you know, like Emma's last victim, her last friend um, is a non-white girl. And mm-hmm. so, you know, and Eileen, it's just sort of like, it's there, but it's not there and not really satisfactorily like uh, plunge into, but I guess the show can't, can't be everything. But as you say, like why introduce Gala in that way and not like, give her a little bit more space in the or, story. Or just a little sense of closure. I don't know. I mean, yeah. Yeah. All right. Um, and that's all the emails we have. So this is, this is it. Here we go. This is our last, uh, discussion of a sharp objects episode, but not our last episode of still watching. Uh, once again, um, no spoiler section. If you've, if you're listening to this, you've seen the finale. So here we go. Yeah. Um, Emma did it. Okay. Uh, so. <laughs> Isn't it feel good to say? <laughs> Just on oh. mic. <laughs> here we go. Um, we've got, so, so the episode opens with Camille walking up to the house and like, it does this, um, thing where it like, you know, cuts back to her remembering things and we hear a lot of things we've heard before. And I was just thinking about it, like how much the show has earned that approach, that recap approach. Whereas in like any other show, it would be so cheesy to like, you know, that, that moment exists in film and television where someone just like hears all the relevant lines that they missed the other meanings of before. And now it's all coming together, you know, but like, because this show is so subjective and so in Camille's head, it really works so. yeah um and then we get we get this like a weird perverse dinner scene uh what did you think of like alan like inserting it like you know You're talking about the death penalty and stuff well there's that but he's also like sit down camille oh yeah yeah it's a fun it's a it's a funny characterization and i'm not sure it's necessarily consistent but the other thing about that scene that like is really creepy is like how obviously out of it Emma is and that like Alan is just kind of like, yeah, this is normal, you know, yeah. like she's just like sick. She's being treated by, by, you know, Adora, you know, whatever, because like, she's very, very like drunk, um, and she saying barely, like weird stuff. She can barely keep her head up. And like, yeah. and what's creepy is she'll, you know, she, she gives this Persephone speech, which we've been sort of teasing all season since Gillian Flynn brought it up in like one of our very first episodes, but like she gives this Persephone speech and she's like trying to remember it. And she's like, that big guy, what's his name? Hades, mm-hmm. like a child trying to tell a story. And like Alan and Adora are looking on like, Oh, isn't it cute that she can't remember? And it's like, no, look at what you've done to your bright teenage girl. Like it's, it's very upsetting. And she's wearing that crown, which is like befitting of the Persephone story, but is still just like so super creepy. And she looks awful. And it's just, um, it's really ghoulish very much. So, so yeah. Um, yeah, and Alan does give this, like, has this weird dad joke about lethal injection. Uh, very strange. Um, and, uh, you know, Camille gives Adora this look that to me reads like, I know. And, uh, and Patricia Clarkson's responding look as Adora the- reads to me like, I know you know, but I, uh, you yeah. know, what did you think? What did I you make th- of that? Well, I think there's an interesting thing that happens in this episode, in this scene and in subsequent ones, when Camille just kind of gives in to what Adora wants to protect Emma, um, where like, it's not so much like a, I found you out or something. It's more like this sort of open, unspoken secret that's finally now just sort of like, seeped out into like the world you know like yeah it was more just kind of this common like acknowledgement 
um, rather than a sort of indicting look in a way. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense to me. It's like, we're not pretend, let's not pretend anymore. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Not like, Oh my God, I can't believe you were doing this to me and to Marion. It's more like, okay, like we're, we're kind of like all, you know, simpatico on this right now. Yeah. Let's be real about it now. But what's interesting about Munchausen by proxy. And like, I think, um, you know, from talking to the people who worked on the show, their interpretation is that Adora like is still in like very large denial about what she's doing in both the book in the book they're like they discover once they ad- um arrest Adora they discover like journal entries about her by her about like what she's done and she says stuff like uh I moved off Camille now and I'm working on Mary and she's much more compliant and then like Marion's dad and blah blah but she doesn't say like I'm poisoning her I'm killing her it's just sort of like I think Munchausen by proxy there is a you know a mental Ill- uh, the the way the mental illness works you don't really think like oh I'm definitely killing this person do you know it's like right I'm right there's a perverse them. sort yeah. of yeah like I'm t- you know maybe maybe the thinking is that you have to get them sick to get the thing out or whatever you know just whatever justification they can come up with right. um yeah no so I guess that's true like an Adora I don't know, maybe her kind of responding look is more just saying to Camille, like, I know that you're like, you think that this was bad for you, but it wasn't or something, you know, and because then later she does get to, to tend to her. Right. So, so like, you know, um, Emma gives her little Persephone speech with a lot, like, which is just loaded with symbolism about Emma herself in terms of like half in hell, half not in hell and the relationship with the mother. And, and she says something like when she's back at the living, they don't want to have anything to do with her because of her time in hell, you know, which is just all like her talking about her own life experience. Um, but we get, Camille saying like, Hey, maybe Emma should come stay with me in St. Louis and Adora. Like what happens next with Adora, like trying to get Emma to go take more medicine. And Emma is like so upsetting because Emma is such a baby in this. And she's just like whimpering for cake. Um, you know, and her mom's forcibly trying to move her. Um, it seems to me like this is Adora being like, no, A, you're not going to take my child from me. And B, let me just like exert control the best way I know how, which is like to take this girl away and make her weaker. Um, and that's when Camille like goes down as like a sacrificial lamb to sort of protect her sister. Um, which is interesting. Yeah. Because I mean, I guess the, th- the thing here is what that. <sighs> With the way that, you know, Adora does her, like, minister or, you know, her tending to, to the, the, her patient, let's say, um, are, are there, like, increased levels of intensity? Does, does Camille, did Camille recognize that, like, oh, like, she could go far enough to kill her this time? You know what I mean? Because there seem to be stakes and it, cause it, like, it's not just like a chronic thing. Like, there seemed to be an escalation, maybe. This seems like a perfect time to hear from Marty Noxon. Hello. Hi, Marty. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm doing so well. Thank you so much for chatting with us today. Oh, my pleasure. As a fan of the book, I've been so interested in the way in which you and Gillian and Jean-Marc and the rest of the writers have expanded uh, Gillian's novel over the course of eight episodes. And the part in this finale where Camille takes poison from her mother is, is sort of one of the examples of an expansion. Um, it's just like a few paragraphs in the book. And here it's you know the bulk of the episode. And I was just wondering, even though a part of me knew how the book was going to end, I was watching it sort of worried. Um, like, oh, my God, Camille, are you trying to kill yourself? What are you doing? From your point of view, what does ex- 
extending the sequence of Camille taking more and more from Adora mean? Like, what is Camille thinking as she's doing that? I mean, I think that, you know, for me and, and Gillian and I obviously talked about this. Um, I think that, you know, the big sort of wish in this story from Camille is, is to know the truth, um, to know the truth about what happened to her sister, to know the truth about what's happening to, to Alma and to know the truth about what happened to her, to just have it out in the open. But I think the the tragic part of that is, you know, it's that you can't handle the truth. Can you actually live with that truth once you get it? Um, and obviously, Camille has a lot of self destructive impulses. But the the the, the double edged sword of the end is that if she if she takes this poison, she could also be the proof if she survives. You know, it'll be in her, and she can say that it was meant to be in her, and it was given to her by her mother. So um, she's going to be the evidence. If she survives, she's the evidence, and if she doesn't, she's the evidence. So I think that she is both doing something heroic and possibly something that will allow her not to deal with the ramifications of what she knows. Um, and she's ambivalent. You know, it's one of the reasons why I love the ending. Is I think she's ambivalent, but I think she—you see, you know—in the coda that she, I think she has been made stronger by by having it all in the open. Because I, because as I said, I've read the book. I was I was sitting there bracing myself for the moment where Richard sees the scars on Camille's body because it just killed me in the book. I think it's just one line that he flinched away or something. Here you've added Curry there to soften it, to be the best editor dad in the world and protector as, as Richard can't deal with it. Can you talk about that change about um, adding Curry and, and what that adaptive difference means for you guys? Well, to me, it was so much about, um, you know, providing some sense of, of hope for her, you know, that Curry you know, throughout, you know, we, we kind of built up his role in her life. It was always implied that he loved her. Um, but, you know, because she, you know, sort of reaches out to him and they're in much more contact through the whole, you know, series, um, you know, it felt right to have an advocate for her there, like just a little glimmer of hope. <laughs> um, you know, and, and it's indicated in the book that, you know, that they're with her after everything happens and, and looking out for her. So it felt like right to have, you know, a sense of like, but also again, because, you know, um, you know, we can't get totally inside Camille's head in the same way the book did um, at the end, but I did feel a sense of hopefulness for Camille at the end. And we needed to show that, not just tell them like, you know, and she's, she's got people. <laughs> and not that there's much resolution on this in the book, but, you know, we, we leave Richard in the hospital room. Um, we don't even have another scene with Camille and John Keane in this episode. So I was just wondering, you know, sort of what your thoughts were on the way in which Camille wraps up her relationships in this version of the story uh, with her two uh, suitors, if we want to call them that. Um, I think that Richard is, um, you know, is a bad bet for Camille romantically. <laughs> um, I think he's a good, a good detective, but I think he, he is um, exactly the kind of guy who wants a fantasy relationship, which is what she wants. So when it gets real in that respect, he's, he's, um, 
you know, he, he, he can't handle something damaged, you know, to that extent. It was a, it was a relationship forged in, you know, dysfunction. The, the irony, of course, is that in a weird way, John Keene is the only person who sees her and loves her, you know, as she is. Um, and it's very moving, I thought. Um, and it felt like, um, you know, there, there were times when, um, you know, we thought about, you know, do they pass each other on their way out of town or, you know, um, but, um, but it's such a, it, it, it's such a beautiful scene in its own way that we were like, let's just let it be what it was. I thought it was really important to not sugarcoat that, that she doesn't get that happy ending. This is someone who we've seen for most of the episodes of the show, like just really self-medicating to a, a, an extreme degree, you know? And so in some ways, I almost wonder if like being in an altered state, this one seems right, much more right. unpleasant than being drunk. Uh, but like th- that's kind of home base for her, you know? Um, and so there, I feel like maybe she's kind of drawn kind of, you know, in a bad way in the same way that she cuts or whatever, but she's kind of drawn to it, uh, you know, similarly to her, her penchants for drink. The idea of it as like self-harm, like she's taking this medicine as an act of self-harm is bolstered by the cuts we get like of her in bed and then her when she's young, sort of like going to stick her finger in the blades of a fan and then images of her cutting herself. You know what I mean? So it's all connected, like taking the poison and every other act of, of self-punishment to her body that she's done uh, is all one. Yeah, and, 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 and Adora saying the thing, this will be good for both of us. I just, going back to that, I just like, that's so... <laughs> it's just like a very creepy line in given the context. Like, yeah. like we should go on a trip together, you know, or like, well, you should let me poison you again. <laughs> this is going to be good. Let's yeah. get, ma- let's yeah. get Manny Petties. Um, yeah, th- there's this other line she has at the table that I love so much where she's like, you know, I'm sure your editor is going to be glad to have you back. Um, like maybe you can write about something more upbeat this time with like this weird little laugh and looking around the table. And I'm like, Oh yeah, Camille's the sick <laughs> yeah. one, Adora. Okay. Um, so, you know, as, as Camille is suffering, um, in her house, uh, we get some other things going on. We get Vickery waking up at a power outage, which I, I mean, like, it's kind of random and it has nothing to do with it, except we've like seen his routine, his morning routine goes so smoothly. Sorry. I think that what that's signifying is this day's different. Like something has broke, broken, like something has changed. Um, and I thought that was a really clever way to sort of like, uh, unsettle the loop of the, of the show, you know, cause it, there, there was this kind of repetitive quality to it. Not, not like, not like I was bored, but there was a rhythm, you know, and so he, so it's valet kind of breaking that, being like, you know, okay, now we're on a new angle. Yeah. And sort of this like sleepy, you know, we, we were making fun of it a little bit last week, this whole like sick thing, but this sort of like sleeping state that, uh, Adora has kept certain people in, uh, throughout her like reign of terror, like Vickery's been sleeping and he's been like bathed in AC and stuff like that and like comfortable. And he wakes up uncomfortable, sweating. Uh, you know, Jocelyn gets to sleep in. Uh, you know, enjoy your rest, Jocelyn. You've earned it. Um, and then we get this, um, we get this shot of, of Emma looking at the paintings. I was wondering, you know, I went back and looked after you told me about the, the paintings at the end of last week's episode. And now I think I understand these two shots, which is like last week it shows how messed up Emma is that she's seeing paintings move. And this week we see her staring, scrutinizing the paintings and nothing happens. And so it's sort of like a clarity check for her. She like knows that the poison right. is kind of leaving her system because she can 
tell reality from fiction. Um, and then we get the John Keane interrogation. What did you make of this whole Dick Vickery, John Keane? Uh, my big takeaway from the scene was just once again, how good Taylor John Smith is like, you know, he could easily have just been like uh, playing the petulant teen, playing the kind of dumb, you know, jock hunk, whatever. But like, he really finds a lot of different, uh, levels and, 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 and he's really, um, affecting, you know, this is, this is his last scene, right? Um, essentially, or he's, you know, it's everyone's last episode, obviously, but like, I don't know. I just felt like he, he used it well. And you know, the whole thing where he's like, you can pin it on me. You can, and it'll probably work, but like, you'd be so wrong, you know, and just sticking to that. And I felt, feel like there's a glimmer, at least on detective stick, detective Dick's face where he's like, yeah, he, he's right. We, we are wrong. Yeah. No, I think it's a really good scene. And then we get this like follow up scene where Vickery and, and Dick are talking. Vickery's being actually kind of nice to Dick, like, sir, saying like, my condolences about Camille. And then Dick has this great line about like, you know, half of this town is wrong and we're looking at the wrong half. Um, Oh yeah, that's a good line. Yeah, yeah. it's yeah. a pretty good line. Uh, okay, and so then we um, we have this showdown between Alan and Vickery in the shave shop. Uh, that's not what it's called, <laughs> yeah. barbershop. Uh, where Vickery brings up the sickness again, and Alan Alan gets his dig in, I guess, where he's like, "Hope you don't get sick either, because you're at my house as much as I am." Burn. Which like a oh, sick burn? <laughs> yeah, like well done, <laughs> you cuck. <laughs> Uh, we cut to Camille throwing up and Eliza Scanlon told me that the recipe they used for vomit in this show, if you want to know, is red Gatorade and saltines. So that's what that is that they're spitting up those poor girls. Um, oh, oh yeah, that's, that's a good little factoid. And then we get Adora sort of in her element, like just has never looked happier than she is in, in the kitchen crushing up pills and like potions and stuff like that. Uh, she says Camille has already finished a bottle, which is just like, that's what I was like, Camille, just you ugh, calm down with this gobbling the poison. And yeah. then Alan has this moment where he tells Adora like to cool it basically and like let them rest. And this is once again, the, like this is Alan's uh, feeble attempts at assertion in this episode. And yeah, uh, he's like, the body is, you know, can work wonders. It just yeah. like heals itself or whatever. So like he knows that she's doing it, but it's almost like, you know, Oh, you shouldn't be so hard on the girls about their piano lessons or whatever. It's like, you know, he's like kind of just like having this casual conversation with her about like, Hey, maybe don't feed your daughter rat poison. Yeah. Maybe keep the battery acid out of the drink. Yeah. Um, so the thing we like, I neglected to mention is that, you know, when Adora starts tending to Camille, she lets, she significantly lets her into the bedroom where Camille is never allowed. Mm-hmm. Uh, she, you know, she puts her in the nighty. She takes her cell phone, takes her clothes, um, makes her sort of pink and soft the way that she likes her girls to be. And then Camille, for all her like horror and all the things that are associated with it, Amy Adams also brings this like, yeah, this like, relief the episode's called milk and you know i gotta think you know this is like mother's milk right it's poison her mother's milk is poison but it's milk she's been denied it's the affection she's been and attention she's been denied and so there's like there's a horror with it but there's also just like a oh this is what this feels like did you notice that she was drinking milk at the dinner table too no no i missed that yeah yeah so um, so yes, yeah, so then we get this interaction between Emma and Camille where, where Camille's like, let's call for help. And Emma's like, no cell phone, dummy, cause you narked on me. <laughs> uh, so they don't have cell phones and Camille's like, go get Richard, go get help. And then there's this really interesting 
Emma and Alan uh, moment. What did you think of this? I don't know. I think the whole Emma Allen relationship is so odd because, you know, like the episode that ended with them dancing, you know, it's just like, I can't really put like a, um, I can't really figure it out. I guess even now that the series has ended, you know, it's just like, a, it's a strange thing. I think Henry Cherney's performance is, is odd. I like it, but like, yeah, I feel like, um, this to me, even more so than the kitchen scene is like my most confirmation that Alan knows exactly what's happening. Yeah. Uh, is unwilling to lift a finger for Camille. Um, and it is almost like because he obviously prefers Emma to Camille. Emma is his little girl. Camille is just his stepdaughter. He says, now is not the time to insert yourself. And it's just sort of like, it feels like let her, let her take the poison for you, you know? Yeah. Like, you'll be safe as long as she's taking the poison. It's sort of like, even if he doesn't know that that's exactly, exactly, exactly what's going on, like, it's, it's kind of, you know, it's very damning of Alan. Uh, not as if there are plenty of other moments that are very damning for Alan, but this is another one. Uh, yeah, and he promises her cake. He's like, go upstairs, but you still don't know, like, the way it's shot, and this isn't in the book, like, Emma's not really in, you know, like I said, Camille taking the poison is a very short part of the book, so it's not this, like, long, like, is she going to escape? What's going to happen sort of thing? So you don't have Emma involved. So, like, the way it's shot, you don't know actually if Emma's going to go for help or right. not. She's looking at the door and sort of deciding. Um, and then we get Dick in the bar in this, in this scene that really, I watched it several times and it didn't make a ton of sense to me. Jean-Marc Vallée explained it as like, you know, it's, it's further, it's, it's a continuation of Richard saying half of this town is wrong and we're looking at the wrong half. Right. And so he's walking around the bar and he sees like the sign for Preaker Farms and the missing girl sign and the Calhoun Day thing. And it's just like, this is all about Adora. It's always all about Adora. Um, which feels like something he doesn't need since he's already seen the medical file. You know what I mean? Like, right. Um, he's already talked to the, 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 the nurse, you right. know, um, Though I did like, you know, he, so he, he, he's looking at all this stuff and then he drops his coffee cup and it slowly falls before it shatters. And then it right. cuts to Kevin Spacey walking with a limp, but then his limp just becomes, you know, a regular walk. I thought that was really well done. Really, well, really, and then really, really, really I don't know if you, I don't know if you noticed this, but on the bottom of the coffee cup, it says Munchausen by proxy. Oh, um, right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So a lot of little details on the show that you yeah. can miss if you're you not gotta, paying attention. You gotta look really closely. Um, we get this really troubling scene of, um, Camille, uh, Adora bathing Camille, um, where Adora talks about how she was abused by her mother and abandoned in the, in the woods, which is straight out of the book and something I really like because we've already gotten some, uh, mentions of Joya, her mother, but, mm-hmm. um, and you know, you gotta love the like, Joya, Adora, Emma, these names that all mean like happiness and love and are all perverted in one way and, and the way in which the, poison has been passed down from one to another and in the generations um i thought was interesting because you know like you know we'll get to more of the ama stuff but i i watched this documentary i can't remember if i mentioned this on the episode last week i think i did but like i watched this documentary mommy dead and dearest an hbo documentary yeah. yeah and um they talk a lot about you know the, this girl who was the you know receive like being poisoned by her mother her whole life you know, killed her mother along with her boyfriend. And the doctor on this, on this, uh, one of the doctors on this documentary was talking about how people who are victims of Munchausen by proxy, they have trouble distinguishing between, um, once again, I can't remember if I said this last week. I don't think so because it's kind of a spoiler, but they have trouble distinguishing between, um, what, 
real violence is and what isn't what what is real sickness what isn't because like if you've been fake kind of fake sick your whole life like what is sickness what is death is it a real thing um and so this idea of like you know emma is the monster that adora created and adora is the monster that joya created and camille is lucky to like though she's been poisoned and damaged she's not like broken the way that other people in her family are. That's the interesting thing that I think I kind of picked up the second time I watched this episode at the very end with the Emma reveal. It's like, oh, that's it's a it's a dark ending, obviously, but it's also like Camille, obviously, you know, was pretty fucked up by this whole situation. But like, she's not murdering people, and yeah. so like weirdly, you're like, oh, she's like the better off, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Uh, and I think that that's like an interesting sort of way of contextualizing Camille, you know, um, because she, for all her pain, you know, physical and psychic, like she, she's better than it. You know, she kind of beat it more than anyone else did. Yeah. She's more overtly damaged than Emma, but she's obviously less actually damaged than Emma. Cause she didn't like, you know, drink up all that poison mother's milk, uh, the way that Emma has her whole life. Um, Camille seems like on the brink of death and, and like, it seems to me like the episode wants you to believe that she's basically saved by the fact that Adora runs out of medicine in this, in this crucial moment. She sort of sinks underwater, remembers her younger self. She remembers John's hands on her. Um, Do you think that Adora is like trying to kill her because she, she's worried that she's going to say something? No, because once again, I just don't think that Adora like, like thinks of it that way. Sees it that way, yeah. and so when she's being so like playful with her, when she's like, when when Camille in the bath is like, I know you killed Marion. Just say it. Just say that you did it. And and Adora's like, I couldn't lie even for you, and sort of like playfully sprinkles her with water, which is so creepy. Um, I believe that Adora believes that. Like, I didn't kill Marion. I'm certainly not killing you. I'm making you better. Like, it, she doesn't. She doesn't view it as actively poisoning that way, even though it's right. rat poison in a mm-hmm. bottle. So, yeah. Uh, and here's, here's another example of Alan's like abject villainy where he like cranks up the music to sort of drown out Camille. Um, as Richard comes to the door, what did you think of this interaction? Oh, I mean, it, it, uh, I don't know. I'm a sucker for like when it all starts coming together, you know? Like, or when, when, when the, the, the investigator finally figures it out and the, the, you know, I, I don't know. So it was nice to like feel like the, everything closing in on them. Um, you know, and, 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 and I think Detective Dick kind of seeing Alan for who he is. But Alan never gets arrested, man. Um, yeah, it's, it's both like, I don't know. Once again, the, the, the episode kind of turns into this like, thriller is he going to save like near misses near saves all this sort of stuff and so like richard coming to the door being sent away with a lie and like an obvious lie because he's like she's with her friends and then you know a camille has no friends obviously and b her volvo's right there you know so it's Mm -hmm. like what's going on you know he's trying he's calling her like he's not totally giving up but the fact that he goes away at all and then i guess just like turns around on the road because they're back like pretty quickly thereafter but anyway she's um 
you know, Camille in this moment discovers that Emma never went to for help. Um, Emma's playing with her dollhouse ominously. Uh, and I like this, this, this bit with the cake because that's very Persephone, right? Cause like Persephone, um, you know, uh, famously like stayed underground because she ate some pomegranate seeds. Yeah. Right. That, which were the things that trapped her down there. Right. Exactly. And so like, you know, she took the cake, she took the food and she's trapped in the hell house. Um, yeah. And, you know, uh, Camille just collapses on the ground and she's just near death. And we see, you know, she, it flashes to young Camille in, you know, in the same position in the towel, Sophia Lillis. And like, I'm very curious if, if some people thought this show was going to end with like, and then Camille died. Um, yeah. I don't know. I, I don't know if that's like what they were really reaching for, but I will say that like, I w- you know, um, just like the end of Get Out, uh, not to spoil mm-hmm. the end of Get Out, I was like really excited to see that blue flashing light. Um, what did you? What did oh you think yeah, that? totally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and like, um, yeah, it was a really Get Out illusion. But I, there's something. Um, Amy Adams is so good at this stuff. Like, I really viscerally felt like sick for her, and like and like desperate, you know. Um, and t- considering that she spends so much of this episode in this adult state. I mean, it's a real feat of like kind of physical acting and just seeing her like on the floor like that. It's, it's, it was, um, it's pretty bracing. Yeah. I, um, like I have to give it to both Eliza Scanlon and Amy Adams for their like poisoned acting in this episode. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. They both like look terrible. And and the makeup work is great. There's, you know, they're sort of pasty and sweaty and like it's, um, yeah, it, it's it's very palpable, I guess, is the word. Yeah, Eliza was saying that they, like, Eliza Scanlon was saying they smeared her with, like, a foundation that was a few shades too pale, right? Right. And then just constantly, like, sprayed her down. And she's like, that does half the acting work for you, because when you're, like, slathered in, like, pasty makeup and constantly damp, you just feel disgusting anyway yeah you know? I, I made um, yeah. some dumb twitter joke to while while i was watching the vmas where i you know it was like me whatever it doesn't matter but anyway involved looking up get it finding a photo of ellen burst in a requiem for a dream <laughs> like at, at her worst uh-huh. uh and um she had the crazy hair and i was like ellen burst must have looked in the mirror in the dressing room and been like oh i got this <laughs> like after the hair was done like I, I think that it really does make a difference yeah yeah it's half the battle uh at any rate um and then we've got this like really um emotional scene of like both richard and curry rushing in uh richard getting to her first but then like flinching away from her scars while curry runs and gets a robe and covers her up and gives her this hug um yeah you know what i was thinking about like that moment because it was so nice to see curry like a friendly someone you know is good in this you know sort of very dark scary place um, kind of bringing some light and safety to it. Like, it remind, you know, it would be like if Cinderella's dad showed back up or, yeah. um, what's that in the little princess? Doesn't the father come back? They think he's dead or something. Um, I don't know. Just those moments of sort of like, I mean, it's a rescue essentially. Yeah. And, and, and I, I like that. I like that it's him that, that does it. Well, it's dad. Yeah. So this is, so this is a big difference from the book. Curry is not involved at all in this in the book. It's like, you know, Richard does come in. Um, sees Camille scars, like sort of like says some shitty, not shitty things, not as bad as the motel, but he's like, are you a cutter? You're like, now's not the time, Richard. Let's just not get into it. But, yeah. um, 
but curry's not there. And I did ask Marty Knox. I was like, why did you guys add curry into this? Like, what is that? You know, what does that do for you? And she was, she, she pointed out that in the book, like you're inside Camille's head. So you get some of the hopefulness that she has, um, for what's going on in her head. There is some hope in her inner, like monologue. But since we're not inside her head, you just have her like half dead on the floor and Richard not being able to deal with like what she looks like. And she's like, that just was too bleak. So we put like a little bit of care and comfort in there for her. Yeah. And, uh, I feel like it was really, really needed. Um, you know, she, she, and she, like, uh, Jean Marfellet is very defensive of Richard. He does not think Richard's a bad guy. And he thinks that, like, you know, him going off to find Emma, because that's what Camille says. Camille's, like, weakly on the ground. And she's like, Emma, find Emma. And Richard goes off to find Emma. Um, meanwhile, Vickery is downstairs, I guess, arresting his girlfriend. Um, so, you know, it's been a full day for everyone. Yeah. And there, and there's always that transgressive thrill of watching, you know, in a movie or a TV show when the, you know, high status sort of untouchable person is like put in handcuffs. Right. You know, because it's such a, such a, such a particular visual, you know? Um, and I think that Patricia Clarkson, you know, where she's really kind of thrashing, like, uh, that, that, that Adora really can't believe what's happening to her, um, kind of does speak to what you were saying in terms of like her not really having any sort of sense of that this is wrong. Yeah, I was really curious. You know, she says, she says something like she's mentally ill. And for a second, when she says that, I was like, Oh, does she mean Emma? And I was like, I was wondering if Adora knows what Emma's up to. Um, Jean-Marc Vallée says no. So Adora does not know what Emma's up to. She, she would not like tolerate that. Um, but so she means Camille and she means she's mentally ill. She calls and she gr- just turns on her like that. You know, she's been so nurturing to her. And then when <laughs> she has to protect herself, she's like, Oh no, she's a crazy. Like what, you know? Yeah. She's a crazy. She calls Vickery Bill. She tells Alan to get on the phone with the lawyer, but none of that's going to help because they've got poison in the bodies. Uh, and they have her sort of dead to rights. This is, I think maybe my favorite shot of the episode uh, is this next one with the medics like shining their lights in Camille and mm-hmm. Emma's eyes as they're sort of like sitting on the ground in Emma's room. I don't know what it is about it. It's just really, really haunting to me. But they look so vulnerable, so sisterly. Um, yeah. You know, I don't know. Something about it. Um, well, they've then, made it through this crucible yeah. together and these lights are sort of like they're the light at the other end, you know, of the tunnel or whatever. Yeah. Uh. Yeah, and they're asking them if they can walk, and Amy Adams has this, like, tiny throwaway line that, like, I missed the first couple times I saw the episode where she goes, I'm walking out of this house on my own two feet, or something like that. Something real, mm-hmm. a lot of moxie in it, so, yeah. Um, and then we get this hospital scene, um, you know, which, like, f- you know, f- outlines some of the poisons that, that, uh, Adora was using, antifreeze, prescriptions, rat poison, um, you know, and, and Richard talking about how like the blood that they took from their bodies will help them like, you know, figure out what happened to Marion and all that sort of stuff. Uh, that Emma was, had built up a tolerance, but you know, Camille hadn't, which is why the poison like works so quickly and terribly on Camille. And then he just sort of like, he says, I'm sorry, but it just seems very clear that he can't deal with it, you know? And then Emma gets this great line. <laughs> What a dick. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) She does that. She does that twice in the episode where, you know, she does it after they run into Jackie as well. Um, We're kind of like, you know, acting one way when the person's in the room, but then, you know, uh, saying something, cutting about them after the fact. And and also, 
Dick says that they found the pliers, and so they're probably going to charge Adora with the, oh, right. with the girls too. Right, you know? the bloody the bloody pliers um, are in the house too. But I, I think it's a good goodbye for Detective Dick. You know, um, him saying I'm sorry for everything like redeems that bad scene in the motel room. I think for the most part, but like obviously, I, there, there's no indication that like they're going to hook up in St. Louis later. You know. Yeah, I think he's. I don't think he's a bad guy. Like the like you know, Dick in the show is so much nicer. Than, than Dick in the book. Like he, Messina did this thing where he made his voice like really soft when he says you have a good friend in your boss. Um, mm-hmm. I recognize this voice. He used it a lot in the Mindy project. You, you have a good friend in your boss and talking about how it was Curry that convinced them. You know, so he's sort of saying like, your boss can handle you. Your boss can take care of you. And like almost, maybe I'm reading too much into it, but almost like a self-recrimination of like, I can't be that for you. Like I can't really touch this. Do you know what I mean? It's sort of Mm -hmm. my sense of all of that. Uh, It's a very loaded moment, well-delivered. But yeah, that's a fond farewell for Detective Dick. Uh, We don't see Vickery again. We don't see John Keane again. Um, And then we we hit a montage. And this is interesting. So it's like, what, 35 or 40 minutes into the episode that we're here. And I'm curious, like, I don't know if people watching the show watch it with like the... the, um, the the progress bar on the bottom or whatever like i do that with certain shows where i'm like how much is left uh, of this procedural have we really caught the killer like what's going right, on exactly um but you know the show has this burden where um you know the book wraps it all up um you know adora gets arrested and in, into like the second to last chapter the last chapter Really quickly, Emma is revealed as the killer, and then there's like an epilogue, a very short epilogue, and that's it. And so it's just sort of like wham, bam. And I think, you know, they really want to try to recapture that in this. So like, could we conceivably have uh, enough episode after the hospital and not have viewers expect one more twist coming? I don't know. But like, you know, p- possibly once they get to St. Louis and you- you're dealing with more you know, you're not going to spend that much time on a happily ever after. Right. And especially right. since Emma starts acting weird, like right off the bat, but, um, you know, they, they try to speed it along as much as they can. So that we've got, we were montaging or montaging a goodbye to wind gap or montaging the arrival in St. Louis. It's not in order either. Like, uh, Adora's trial, a goodbye to Alan, a goodbye to Kelsey and Jodes. All of that is sort of mixed in with Emma meeting her new friend, May and all of this other stuff that happens. What did you think of this transition? Uh, you know, I think with the music, um, it's this kind of gliding, you know, sort of, aerial kind of sounding music that uh, reminded me very much of the end montage of Big Little Lies. Yeah, absolutely. It had that same kind of, you know, well, very valet, you know, valet kind of style to movement to it. Um, but it's nice, but then, and, and, but knowing what's coming, you knowing that it's tinged with that, this is not to be, you know, this, this happiness. Um, it's sad too. You know, you, you kind of, you kind of feel for the, the, the lie of it, I guess, in a way. Um, yeah, as soon as she's, as soon as you see May, her new friend, I'm like, oh no. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, it's, uh, it's so rough. Um, and Camille's trying so hard, you know, like she's sleeping on the futon. She's given Emma her room. Um, you know, Amy Adams, like they put like more makeup on Amy Adams to be like, Hey, she's pulled herself together. She's doing well. Um, she, they go and visit, uh, Adora in prison. We do have a final Jackie scene. It's, it's funny that you mentioned this whole like, uh, Cam- 
Emma acting one way to a person's face and then another way behind their back. That's true. And both, and I think like should serve as a warning sign the way that Emma feels about Jackie feels like a warning sign to me. But also it's like this conspiratorial, like it's just you and me against the world. So mm-hmm. like every person who enters our circle, like I, I'm going to talk trash about them as yeah. soon as they leave because it's they don't get us. it. They're not us, you know? Yeah, exactly. No, yeah, totally. Um, and then we get this curry dinner. Um, and this scene. We're not, not, <laughs> oh, we're not, not, not <laughs> we're not eating curry. We're at dinner no, at the curry's yeah. house. Um, yeah. where we get what I would consider my personal nightmare, which is my editor sitting there reading my piece right in front of me. Aloud. <laughs> Aloud. Uh, this is ripped directly from the epilogue of the book. So I, I'm gonna, I'm gonna tweak Gillian Flynn a little bit here because like, can you imagine writing about, and like, I love this book. I love Gillian Flynn. I think she's so talented. Billy, can you imagine writing something? Uh, and then putting it in a show and then having a character read it aloud and then be so overwhelmed by how good it is. They like take their glasses off and go like, it's beautiful. It's beautiful. This is the peril about anything about about when writers write anything about a writer who's supposed to be brilliant, because then you're like, well, you have to make brilliant writing, you know, you know, so, but I mean, I I love the end of the book. I think it is beautifully written. It is. Um, is. So I'm glad that it's in there. But like, yeah, it's, <laughs> there's, there's some cheek, I would say, yeah. in, in doing that. Yeah. Uh, and then we get this dinner scene where like Emma is, uh, you know, very obviously jealous of May. The fact that May is like interested in journalism and all sorts of stuff. I think it's very subtle though. I think, I think that, um, Eliza Scanlon plays it perfectly. I think that, um, Curry's wife noticing in this kind of like yeah. her facial expression changes. Obviously Camille notices it. I think that as far as like, a shift in Camille's perspe- perspective of her sister was going to, I mean, it was going to have to happen almost in a way for her to get to the final scene. I think that was, it was a really subtle one. I'm glad they did it with that. You know, that it wasn't like Emma being outright horrible to her, for her new friend. It was her being like, Oh, you're such a, you know, you're just saying that to impress Camille. Like you're such, and, but she's saying it in kind of a teasing way, not like a cruel way, but like people at the table notice a certain something under that, that, uh, feels a little darker. I don't know. I think it was just a really well done moment. Right. A, a very shut the fuck up Jodes that like flies in wind gap, but uh, maybe not so much at, at the curry table. Um, yeah. And then we get this, yeah, this, this scene where Emma is like being tucked into bed and she's like, um, you know, do you, would you wish I were a writer like May? And, and Camille gives her a great answer, which is just like, I just want you to be you. And I, lo- I care about you and I love you. And, um, but that is not enough for Emma. And, uh, we get this, the, you know, May's, May's mom comes to the door, says her daughter's missing. Um, Camille, a picture. Well, she's just like, do you have you seen her? You know, it's not like she's not concerned right. yet. But, right. Have yeah. you, have you seen the girls? Um, they had a fight. They had their first fight. Have you seen them? A picture falls ominously off the wall. Uh, Camille finds, uh, the, the like carefully, uh, sewn coverlet, dollhouse coverlet in the trash. And then she goes to put it back. And that's when she finds the tooth floor. The tooth floor. <laughs> yeah. The <laughs> very, it's a very carefully inlaid tooth floor. Yeah. I, uh, I talked to actually the, the, you know, production designer on the show about the tooth floor. So you can read about that on vf.com. Um, but, uh, then we get, we get Eliza Scanlon as Emma walking in and just goes, don't tell mama, cut to black. And, 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 and valet has very softly started playing the first strains of this kicky kind of song, at, like at, at, in a close up on Camille's eyes as she's like 
realizing what's happening. Uh, and then it crashes into like the, you know, the, the, you know, full volume, um, with those credits. It's, I at first was like, a, didn't like it because I was like, I thought it was too abrupt, but the second, on second viewing, yeah. um, I think it's such a, a funny way to go out, you know? I, I, I like, I, it's so unexpected. Um, I like that you called it that. Jean-Marc Vallée called it the punchline of the whole series. Right. I think it is a great ending, actually. I didn't like it the first time. And the second time I was like, no, this is great. Um, and then when Richard told me to watch the end credits, I was like, oh, there's even more, uh, where mm-hmm. we get throughout the credits, um, we get the reenactment of the crime. You do find that, that Emma has killed, uh, her new friend, uh, in St. Louis. And, and in the book, it says, you know, she got help from Kelsey and Jodes in the, in, in back in Wind Gap, but this one she did all by herself. Right. And if you are watching this video, Either I'm dead or I'm in a very, very, very bad situation. She said, oh my God, I can hear gunshots. I can hear men outside. Where are they? What have they done to them? Are they dead? Are they not dead? There is one suspect, her father, the Sheikh. It's Madeline Barron from In the Dark. We've teamed up with our new colleague, Heidi Blake, at The New Yorker to try to answer a question about one of the richest men in the world, the ruler of Dubai. Why do the women in Sheikh Mohammed's family keep trying to run away? There's five policemen outside and two policewomen inside the house. So basically I'm a hostage. And he reminded me that Sheikh Mohammed can get me anywhere. Because you're a rich and powerful person, you can effectively break any law you want in our country and get away with it. The Runaway Princesses is available now. Follow In the Dark wherever you get your podcasts. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You can earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Uh, we're going to go now really quickly to our interview with Eliza Scanlon. Hi. Hi. <laughs> uh, I'm so excited to get to talk to you about all the spoilers now. No, no holds barred. <laughs> Here we go. <laughs> were you surprised by the way the reveal is sort of just dropped right at the end and, and the end credits? Or did you know it was going to all play out that way? Um, well, it was written that way. Um but yeah, I, I mean, I loved, I loved the montage and the music uh, interlaid with it, um, and it's it was it, it was a lot of pressure having the last line of the whole show, and uh, it was that was actually one of the hardest scenes to be honest to shoot because I wanted it, I wanted to get it right, and um, even though it's a, quite a simple line and the it's kind of hard to just portray or to feel that sense of relief and at the same time terror that her whole alibi has been uncovered um, and her whole kind of uh, facade, her her veil of, I don't know, um, innocence has been uh removed so it's it's just like a lot to it's a lot to take on for that last scene um but 
Yeah, and even uh, what I was noticing, because I, I was still watching it through the credits, um, just recovering from the whole show, and then he's interspersed um, shots of uh, Amma strangling the girls that she's killed. And even that, it's just like, you're not stop. I'm, I'm already anxious enough. <laughs> <laughs> it's like it's not even over, even when the credits are, are rolling. <laughs> I know. You gotta... It's a very haunting um, episode, yeah. I... I was talking to Jean-Marc earlier today and he, he mentioned that he thought of your last line, the don't tell mama line as a, as almost like a punchline, um, I guess to a very, a very dark joke. Can you talk about like how he talked you through delivering that, um, as a, as a sort of punchline? Um, well, yeah, it it definitely became a punchline, uh, throughout the, the show because yeah, she was constantly saying it and, I think there's, I think the interesting thing about uh, the way that this line was aimed to be delivered was that it had a completely different meaning. Um, And it's, I guess, the role, well, the power has been shifted and, and I guess in all the other circumstances, she has been in a position of power and, and this time you see her in a, a position of total vulnerability. Um, and so the punchline takes on a whole new meaning. Um, and yeah, I, that, that last scene was really quite difficult to do uh, because I really didn't know that last scene was really up to Jean-Marc uh, and how he wanted to end the show and what he wanted to leave the audiences with. Um so I was all ears and uh, Jean-Marc is a very visual person. Um, he's a visual director and so he, he really knows what he wants in terms of, um, I guess, the uh, atmosphere he wants to portray and um, uh, what feeling he wants to leave the audiences with. And uh, it was a matter of translating that idea in his head and the the kind of... Uh, constant inspiration he receives um, and translating that into an actor's direction um, and and something that an actor can take on and um, show in a a way that isn't, I guess, self-indulgent or or just purely objective or external because I guess the, the juicy stuff comes when actors are totally... Uh, committed to the character and not the the external part of it. Um, so there was a bit of technicality to it. He wanted me to run up the stairs because she had just, um, I guess, the, the given circumstance of the character was that she had just come up the stairs from um, from doing finishing her business with the last girl who she has murdered. Um, which is a very uh, high-stakes circumstance. And so she's just come from uh, doing that and and she's arrived at her door to find, uh, yeah, her whole life has been, and her whole motive and her her secret has, yeah, she's come to the door and she's realized that her secret has finally been revealed and it's a mixture of relief and um, and fear and, and horror and, um, yeah, I think it was just 
he wanted that intensity of running up the stairs and and coming out of and running away from something horrific that she's done to find that uh, her secret has, I guess, finally been revealed and she doesn't have to run away and, and hide anymore. She can just let it go. Um, and so, yeah, he really wanted that intensity and, and Amy and I kind of worked together and she, about realizing that moment. Um, and yeah, it was very much collaboration and that's what I love about Jean-Marc. He's a very collaborative director. Um, and he's really open to ideas and, um, he's very much, he's attracted to really naturalistic acting and, um, and instinct and, uh, improvisation. Uh, so yeah, that was, it was, it was experimental and that's what I loved about the show. And, um, yeah, I know it's, a, it's just a really, it's just a really small scene and a small punchline, but it was really hard. <laughs> Those scenes that you see in the end credits, from your perspective in terms of filming them, like what is it like to really just let go and go into that state of like such violent mm. fury with Emma? Yeah. Yeah. I, I'm, it was, it was, um, scary. Uh, and having uh, well, pretend, even even pretending to perform something like that is terrifying and chilling. And um, it wasn't. I don't really get too caught up in. Uh, well, when I go home, I don't find it too hard to shake off what happened or what we uh, achieved that day and and the places we went that day, but even just doing that and trying to stay in uh this state of pure rage and um and violence and desire to hurt was scary and i think a lot of people would just find that uncomfortable and um even just letting out rage i think is something that we don't do a lot and something that uh, we are taught not to, uh, not to show in public. Uh, so even, yeah, it was just an interesting, an interesting revelation for me and it, it, having all these people around me on set while I was, you know, pretending to kill people. It was kind of, um, it was a weird, a weird kind of, uh, embarrassment I had. I was, because you know, I just feel like we don't really have a lot of permission to get that angry in real life, and it's 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 weird that we get full reign um, in to do that in in screen and and TV, and I think that's what I really love about acting is that all the social and moral codes of society can be thrown away when you're acting, and it's just you being totally committed to the role. Um, but yeah, I guess that has a lot to say about the whole show in general and the message of the show is that, um, <clears throat> I mean, women are, it, it's, women are denied this uh, right to be angry and, and to show their rage and manifest their rage in a way that, uh, uh, I, in a way that I guess a lot of men can do. Um, 
So, yeah, I, I, it was even just performing that. I, I definitely felt, um, I, I really felt the message of the, the show, even just the way I reacted to to performing that. Um, but anyway, I went on a tangent. Uh, but, uh, yeah, I agree with your mark. And it was, yeah, you don't want it to be too showy or anything. And I liked how he put it in at the end. He hasn't really, he hasn't really shown it a lot. He's just done a few flashes, uh, which I think leaves a lot of food for thought for the audience and it lets them imagine. And I think in the end, the show isn't about the murders, so to speak. It's, it's about, um, like we said earlier, cycles of abuse and and the abuse that runs in a multi generational family and um, the violence within that. And I think if we were to focus so much on the killing and who the murderer was and who did it, it would take away from the whole message of the show. And I think even if I'm excited to see, well, the audience's frustration being left on such a a cliffhanger, uh, I, I guess that frustration where is so, I guess, exemplary of our, our society today. We want, we want the, we want the sensation. We want the, the murder. We want the violence. And, um, sometimes it's more interesting to, to look beyond that and look at, uh, look into something deeper than that. Um, yeah, I found that ending way more powerful than if we were to, show the murders and then um, show Amma being taken away and arrested and she goes to jail and all of that. I think it would definitely take away from the reason why Marty and Gillian wanted to, wanted to make this show. And um, yeah, this whole notion of female rage and, and mental illness. And I think that's what we should be looking at in the end. We kind of got the emotional resolution before the final scene. So like if we ending on a jolt, I think is okay because we've had some catharsis right. previous to it. I, I wanted to bring back up, you, you brought up big little lies and, and I, I kind of want to talk about that. And like the way in which Jean-Marc Vallée keeps making these mystery shows, I guess you could call them mystery shows, but it is like, it both is and isn't interested in the mystery. He's interested in the mystery, but I think he's not interested in the solution because it's sort of beside the point. And I agree with that. He's in, he's into the, the atmosphere of a mystery. Yeah. You know, of, of what, of what those questions kind of feel like in the air. Yeah. Um, and look like and sound like and, and, um, you know, a mystery kind of by depth, by design has a certain unease to it. And he's really good at depicting that. Um, yeah. So I, I can understand why he's great. You know, it's interesting because a lot of his other film work isn't that, um, you know, Dallas Buyers Club or Wild or whatever. Big Little Lies had a very like accelerated like, and then it's over the end. And, um, you know, the, the question the whole time is like, who killed, who killed someone? And actually, who's, who's even dead? Right. Uh, is the question of Big Little Lies. And, um, the, the HBO adaptation very much yada, yada, yada over all of that. They're like, yeah. here it is. Bye. Um, and there's so much more about it in the book. Uh, you know, when you watch in the show, it doesn't, it actually doesn't even like make complete sense, uh, until you know what happens in the book for Big Little Lies. But I think that is because Jean-Marc Vallée is like, that's not really important. <laughs> what's important is like in Big Little Lies, what's important is these women and what they've gone through and how they've like found, uh, you know, sympathy in each other and all this sort of stuff. And I think the same is true of, 
you know, this, this story we've talked, you and I have talked about primarily in the spoiler section. You and I have talked about how from the beginning, how a lot of people who read the book and watch the show know it's Emma from the start, but it doesn't matter that you know, that's not the point of the story at all, you know? So yeah, I was totally compelled by this series, even though I knew the big two right. reveals, you know, because I was, well, I was curious to see how they would get there and how they would do it. But because Valet and the other and the writers and these incredible performers like just created such an incredible mood and like texture, um, that it was just fascinating to kind of just immerse yourself in it. And like, I, you know, uh, despite doing this podcast and doing what I do for a living, it can be hard for me to get really into a TV show. Like I, I'm much more, it's e- a lot easier for me with movies. Um, but I just think this was so enveloping, um, in a really that, yeah, that it doesn't really matter that Emma did it because like, that's so far from the point. Let's hear what Jean-Marc Vallée has to say about it. Hello. Hello. How are you? I'm pretty good. And you? I'm doing well. Thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. We've talked to a number of your actors over the course of the season, and most of them have said something about both how unconventional your methods are in a good way, and how maybe initially they were resistant, but then they would sort of give over to you and really enjoy the process going forward from that. Can you tell when an actor sort of gives themselves over to to your process? Yeah. Yeah. There's less uh there's less questions. <laughs> and there's more smiling. <laughs> and uh and uh, uh but of course at the beginning uh shooting handheld all the time without cutting and shooting the rehearsals and blockings as they arrive. It's unexpected. And I ask the crew to get out. So there's, they, they can use the space and they're free to use it. They're not, they don't have marks and I'm going to follow them. And so, so this new space of freedom is a little bit uh, challenging at the beginning, but it takes a scene. It takes a scene or two and then bang, they get in and, uh, they get in and they enjoy it and they love the uh the fact that they're performing nonstop for 30 minutes as i shoot uh maybe 3 4 5 shots moving from one actor to the other respecting distance between them uh uh and uh and trying to design and figure out what this is how the shot will be covered, and 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 how the scene will be covered. How uh, when and mainly it, the the main characters are 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 uh, like a- Amy uh, Camille. Camille was was whatever Amy was doing, was watching carefully and reacting to this and moving with her and showing what she was looking at. She's the privileged one, and 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 we needed that to have this uh, sense of. Uh, storytelling and of strong POV and this this obsession of words also that was so amazing in the book in Gillian's book how this this girl this woman is so obsessed with words and and she works with them she heals and harm herself with them and uh, and yet there wasn't any voiceover and that was one of the quality the quality number one to my humble opinion in the book was 
her take on the world and her voice, her internal monologue. I just love turning the pages in the book and again and listening to this woman talking about how she hurts herself, how she cuts herself, her how she talks about her sexuality, her mother, her friends from the past, her boss, her emotions. Her, it, it was it's such an amazing book and yet we don't have any voiceover in the series. So Gillian and Marty Noxon were like, Whoa, really? That's that's <laughs> that's some courage to adapt this book with no voiceover. And 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 then I went, we're going to get crucified. They're going to hate the series and we're going <laughs> to get we're going to get compared and and they're going to prefer the book and we're 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 condemned. And yet what we found is this way of shooting and this way of going into her head and this way. And since she's obsessing with words, every time there's a word burning on her body, instead of talking about it, she sees it in her reality. It's so effective. And it, and the show is so effective in putting us inside of Camille's head. But since you have eight episodes, you do have a larger world to play in. And so you've got room for perspectives from the men in the story that you don't really have that much in the book. So Curry and Dick and Vickery and Alan, like what, what to you does it mean to have these male characters more fully fleshed out in the story and have their perspectives as part of, of the whole narrative? Well, I'm, I, I don't see it as a, a male versus woman uh, combat or thing. You know, I, I have a bunch of characters, whether they're male or female. And I'm, I'm as a storyteller, as a director, I'm trying to, I'm trying to give them flesh, and I'm trying to, well, I, I care for them, and I wanna, I wanna film them in the right way. I wanna make sure that they, we, we know what they're thinking, what they're, what they are. You know, I, I, I didn't take this as. Oh, Gillian, uh, uh, there weren't there weren't as developed in the book. Uh, can we uh, do this? And it, it wasn't that, you know. The intention was more a general one, where I look at the whole thing, these these all these characters. And uh, funny enough, the male in this project are 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 a supporting role, but they're strong supporting roles, and. Uh, and uh, so, of course, I I, I paid a little, I gave them a little bit of attention to to uh, uh, make sure that they were well served and and that the whole thing was well served and that they were going to shine a great light on the main characters since that's their first mission. And the funny one was, uh, of course, the the character of Alan became something very special where with his obsession with music and his, and his, and the way he listens to music and his, so we're like, there's something wrong with this guy. I saw a solitaire, a man, uh, he's such a lonely man, you know, and, and, and he likes these solo piano that are beautiful, but yet very sad. And he likes these crooners that are singing about love right. and heart and broken heart, from Engelbert to Perry Como to Robert Goulet. And he likes these old Hollywood vintage classic score from films, you know, from old school films, from A Place in the Sun to 
les parapluies de Cherbourg ou même French, uh, French uh, uh, music, Michel Legrand et Nana Mouskouri. Uh, il est un gars romantique et il romance même en français. <laughs> well, he's he's romantic, but you know, in moments like uh, when you have the Everly Brothers tune that that closes out the second to last episode, that yeah. it, it helps reveal um, like his monstrosity that comes with that because you can't have an Adora without yeah. an Alan sort of looking the other way. So I just yeah. find that really interesting. Yeah, I know. They're only revealing this at the end of Seven, that he's part of it in silence, just looking away. And he feels, he doesn't say anything. And, you know, he he feels guilty and devastated, but he just keeps on doing it. So to answer your question, uh, yeah, that was uh, always great to work with all these actors uh, and being seeing them being humble, you know, and beautifully humble to to play these male parts that are just serving a supporting part but they did it like it was a main the main part and it was amazing it was amazing to see them do their magic from Vickery from Matt and and, and to Chris and Messina and uh, and Curry and uh Yeah, I, I wanted to talk about Miguel a little bit because there is this adaptive change in the finale where you've got this scene from the book where Dick finally sees uh, Camille's skin and he sort of flinches away. And it's a moment where you're sort of disappointed in him and feeling for her and she's so vulnerable. And in the book, you know, she's all alone. But in the show, she has Curry there being like the ultimate dad to her and taking care of her. What does that change softening that reaction what does that mean to you i loved that he was there i loved that he was yeah. there uh, like uh, also as the father figure and almost uh, the hero the uh finally doing something you know because he made he, he, he that was his idea to send her there to uh confront her demons and their past and maybe uh she he thought that I would do her good to go back home, but he tells her somewhere in five, I forget sometimes parents always always uh, are not always good to their kids. And uh, yeah. and she breaks down in episode five where she says, every time I'm here, I feel like a bad person. And it's so heartbreaking to see that Camille is to realize that Camille just wants to be a good person as you see her uh, taking wrong decision after wrong decision. And, uh, but this finale, uh, it, you see, it's, I, I, to me, it was more a, a moment that, that the difference there in that particular scene is how we see Richard Willis in the book and in the series, to me, was different that with what Chris Messina brought into this part where when Ama says, what a dick in the hospital bed, He's not, he's not really a dick like what I felt in the puzzle when I was reading the book. It gave him right. more humanity. And yeah. we kind of identify ourselves as the audience with Richard, who's the only one from day one to the end who's trying and telling everybody in this place, in this small town, there's something wrong. You guys, come on. 
there is something wrong. And even when John Keane, after the interview, and Vickery thinks it's Keane and everybody thinks they got the killer, he's like, maybe we're looking at the wrong half. And still, he goes back to the bar, looks at details on the walls, and like, he's us. And then when he sees these cars at this point, we didn't, you know, he didn't want to do it, and I didn't want to do it where you're disgusted and you're like, oh, my God. It's, it's, it was more than that where we were. And when we shut this, and he was, we, we ruled for this guy, and he had to, he wasn't, he was, he was a dick when he told her, you're just a slut and a drunk in the motel room in episode seven. That's not something you say. Come on. He's so hurt. He's so hurt that he's hurting her with these violent words thrown in her face like this. That's, he's being an asshole there. But still, we, we still rule and, and for both, for her and for him to find the truth. So the father figure is there and it's, uh, and he's just comforting and she, she breaks down like a kid sobbing and crying for the first time. She's allow herself to let go of these tears, ears probably, ears of, of tears and of crying that she didn't do. And, uh, and it's not, a, you know, for people, it's not, it's not an easy thing to cry and to let out sounds. So, so this moment is, is beautiful and, and it's a moment between two and, uh, between just the father figure and, and, and the daughter and, uh, well, the daughter she represents and these two are so, uh, yeah. or these two are so alike with their addiction to alcohol and with their sense of moral and how they see the world and how they want to make, how they try to make the world better with journalism, with writing and telling people stories of what, how, how we are and how crazy we can be, but how great we can be with words and with describing and, you know, so. As someone who had read the book before I started watching the series, um, I was so impressed throughout the way in which you found organic moments to draw attention to the floor in Adora's room or the dollhouse, which I knew would be important to the very, very final moments of the show. And, uh, you know, this, this is your second, after Big Little Lies, this is your second sort of mystery show, though I'd hesitate to really call them mystery shows because there's so much more. But how do you determine in the edit how many clues to leave in, how, what to leave out, what balance to strike in terms of the mystery and the clues and the big reveal at the end? Well, it's a, it's a, it's a good question, but it's always, always uh, important to not be afraid of showing the thing and even seeing the, the floor. Uh, I voluntarily didn't want to show it when she's polishing the floor in episode two. Emma is polishing the floor in the morning. And uh, as she looks up, hearing Alan uh, with mouthwash, mouthwash in his in his mouth, and and uh, so there is just to see Ama doing her, her uh, taking care of her of her house and not showing with a top shot what the floor is made of, and and but the floor is made out out of teeth. Come on, 
who has this <laughs> twisted mind? Gillian Flynn, yeah. we got to bow, we got to curtsy, and we got to give her <laughs> so much credit to think of this dark, dark story of abuse between these women. The history of abuse is so crazy and yet so heartbreaking, and and it's so... Yeah, it is heartbreaking to see them trying to love each other, and they just don't know how. So this element, I I never, never was afraid to show it, and I wanted the audience, I mean, particularly if you haven't read the book, it doesn't have to, you know, it doesn't have to attract attention, and if you don't show it, you're, you're going to attract attention. And that's why it's nice in this kind of storytelling from BLL to uh, Sharp Objects to same thing on the characters. You know, I spoke to a few people, a few critics who had already seen the finale and they were surprised by the very, very last second of the reveal. And But, you know, what conversations did you have around this like very last second reveal of Emma and then even going so far as to put other information into the closing credits or what do you want that to leave the viewer with? Well, it was impossible to explain the murder in the story at the end because I mean, instinct-wise, you have this line, don't tell mama. This is a punchline. Like in comedy, you have a punchline and then you give a break. This is a punchline and there's no way you can add some images to explain how she killed the two girls and with who. It's It's bad storytelling from a director who wants to go into Ama's head and show how she killed them right there at this moment. Because she's not there. She doesn't think of how. And the, the device, the, the design of the whole series is to see the world and to tell the story through the main character's point of views, mainly through Camille, but also through Ama and Andorra. So I was like, where can we do? Where can? Because it's not going to be Camille. Camille is not, doesn't know that how Ama did it. So I wasn't a big fan of shooting these scenes with Ama and the two friends killing the girls. And Marty and Gillian wrote them in, and I was like, we don't need this, girls. I mean, I don't see how I'm going to use this. And I, I, at one point, I didn't want to shoot them. And I went, yeah, all right, we'll shoot them. We'll shoot them, and we'll, you know, we'll see in the cutting room. And... And then when I cut the scene, I went, well, of course, there's no way to put it there. And then the song, at one point, uh, uh, the song uh, goes, you know, explodes, and it talks about all, all my loving for you. And, and, then, and then I went, what if, what if, you know, in the series, you know, we've done this a few times where these heart smash cut to something else from... Camille thinking or dreaming or seeing something. And why don't we smash cut and we cut the song. And this is nobody's POV. It's the storyteller's POV. And there's no more music. And now we give you the real answer. Because we still wonder and have questions once we hear, don't tell mama. Okay, don't tell mama. The teeth are there in the dollhouse. 
she probably killed her new friend to get the teeth. And it's probably her, but is it? How, how did she do this? She's just a small girl, a, a, a teenager. And, and then you see that with these quick glimpses of images of her and her two friends killing Natalie Keene and Anne Nash. And she did it alone. She did uh, uh, May, the, the friend at the end. She did it by herself. And we finish on, on a breathing and then we go on with the credits. And, and I thought it was just to see Ama at the end as the woman in white and just to bye-bye and she's looking at us and she goes in the wood and oh my god it's fun it's fun storytelling yeah yeah it's really fun one last question for you and this is just i think more of an opinion because i'm not sure that the show answers it but maybe it does is do you think adora knows about Emma, do you think Adora knows what Emma's doing? I, I I I like to think no, but I'm also not sure of the answer. But I think the audience can decide. But uh, I, when I read the book, I didn't think so, and I didn't shoot it thinking that. And I know that Patricia didn't didn't either think that. So so. You know, her little llama, like Marion, and it's just Camille. I, she says to Camille the most violent uh, line after Richard Willis' line about being a slut and a drunk is, I never loved you. I mean, I think it becomes first before Richard Willis' line. You don't say this to your to your child. And uh, and uh, yet she says it. And it, she, it's just about this thing she she can't love this daughter, but the others, she would kill for them. She would kill for Emma and Marianne, although she's not even aware of her disease of, of uh, Munchausen by proxy. She's killing her daughters, and she's like, no, n- n- you know, she's, she, that's, a, that's a mental illness. That's crazy, but I think she wants to do good. She doesn't want to kill. She didn't want to kill Marion. Doesn't want to kill uh, Emma. She just wants to take care of her and helping, helping a little bit with, you know. Um, but there, there must be a guilt part somewhere because she, you know, because she's using poisons and giving her daughters poisons. But to think that Emma is doing it and she would protect her, uh, uh, no. I love this series. I'm so glad we have it. Um, I think Amy Adams is like so completely incredible. Eliza Scanlon, like, you know, Patricia Clarkson. I mean, I I already knew with the exception of Eliza Scanlon, I already knew all these individual players were capable of this, but I think that there is just something that you find. And I found this also, you know, in big little lies and also in wild um, and, and in Dallas buyers club for that matter, that there is something about like an already capable actor giving themselves entirely over to Jean-Marc Vallée's, uh, you know, odd way of shooting his process that reveals just something even more profound. I want him to keep directing TV forever. 
I know. Like, we, I guess give the man a break, but then, like, let's find another female fronted. Limited series. Yeah. Yeah. Female fronted lead for, because he had to have done Big Little Eyes on this back, like, back to back, basically. Um, so yeah, a a break, maybe one year off, and then, you know, we'll watch Andrea Arnold's Big Little Eyes, and then he can come back with, with something else. So. All right. Is there anything else we want to talk about sharp objects wise? Should we, should we play the, the hog noises on the two one last why don't time? We, we- can we, we, why don't we fade out with it at the okay, end? Okay. All right. All right. <laughs> um, yeah. No, thank you everyone for listening. Um, we weren't really, we weren't, I think maybe I was more nervous than you were, but like Westworld was such a, you know, tricky, you know, Easter eggy mystery show that like obviously that kind of sucks people back in and they wanted like, you know, digest it and, and, and recap it and all that. So we were a little concerned that sharp objects would not be the same thing, but like, Thank you guys for sticking with us, sending the emails, um, the nice ones anyway. Um, <laughs> we appreciate it. We hope you'll um, stick with us uh, as we have a little bit of an eclectic future until we settle on a new show in October. I'm really excited about the new show that we think we want to do, uh, but we, yeah. we cannot announce it yet. But I'm really, well, really, well, can, really Can we excited. get a hint or something? I don't know. Like, we're, we're, think, think east. <laughs> go, go east, young man. Yeah. Uh, get the vodka ready is that too much anyway um <laughs> that's probably too much all right wear your big fur hat and go to russia no. <laughs> all right um richard um other than telluride where can people find you until you return to uh still watching uh i'm just gonna be at the curry's house just that seems like a safe place to be eating curry at the curry's yeah yeah <laughs> at, tweeting at rylaws from the curry's couch how about you Great. You can find me shrunk down exploring the tooth floor, uh, in Emma's dollhouse. <laughs> in the tooth floor in all of our hearts. We all have one. Uh, the tooth floor was the friends we made along the way, probably. Um, or you the can friends' find me- teeth, anyway. <laughs> exactly. Ooh. Uh, you can find me at com. You can follow me on Twitter at Joe wrote this. Um, yeah. So I guess you yeah, queue it up, Dave, and, and thank you guys. We'll see you soon. You all appreciate it. <laughs> We've all been there before. You're planning a dinner party or having family over or even just cooking for yourself when all of a sudden it starts to feel overwhelming. Uh, I live in a very small one-bedroom apartment with a very small kitchen. I can't figure out what to serve besides water soup at this point. I'm Chris Morocco, food director of Bon Appetit and Epicurious, and this is Dinner SOS, a new podcast from Bon Appetit. Maybe it's a last-minute party with no menu inspiration, a kitchen with no space, a toddler who will only eat buttered pasta. Name your dinner emergency. We're here to help. Here's how the show works. On each episode, we'll take a call from a home cook facing a real dinner emergency. Then, I'll work with one of our editors or someone from our amazing test kitchen to try and solve it. Because cooking for the people you love should inspire joy without a side of stress. Make sure you're following Dinner SOS wherever you're listening now. 